following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we do pray. I pray and ask, Lord, your special blessing tonight upon the concert. Father, what a great time to honor and glorify your Son as the light of the world. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and being that light, the Son of Righteousness, as John was explaining from the hymn. And I pray tonight would be, Lord, a time where you're honored and where you open the eyes of any, Lord, who don't know you. May you bring many, Lord, and encourage your people as well, just that we can sing praises to you and listen to those praises and be reminded of the great gospel the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to go exploring inside of a cavern or a cave. Have any of you had, had a chance to do that? Maybe not fallen into one, but just exploring. My wife and I have had opportunity a couple of times in the last several years to go. And it's a neat experience as you travel down along these narrow, windy paths going deep, deep down in the earth. Sometimes it's pretty dark and damp. And, oh, I didn't think about it. Maybe some of you are claustrophobic. But it's a fun time. My wife and I really enjoyed the few times we've had and opportunities we had. One cavern we went to in New York uh, went down about uh, two, 250, 300 feet, which was deep enough for us. The famous Carlsbad Caverns go down about 1,000 feet and are 30 miles in length. And I also learned this week that the deepest cave in the United States is actually in Hawaii. It is the Kazamura Cave, and it is over 3,600 feet in depth and extends over 40 miles. What I was thinking about, you know, imagine if we were on a trip to Hawaii together and we decide we're going to go to this specific cave and they're offering tours and, and you're on one of the tours, you're listening to your tour guide and He's talking about the various facts about the caverns. And after traveling for a while, you're curious. And so you ask him, how how long have you been doing these tours? To that, the young man replies, oh, this is my first one. Actually, I've never even been in this cave before, but I've read a lot of books about it. Now, how would you be feeling at that moment? Like, how do we get out of here, right? Right? What would be crossing your mind? You wouldn't feel exactly very secure, would you? Or, or comfortable or feel that confidence in this young man's ability to lead you around, especially thinking about the fact there's 40 miles of these caverns. You'd probably trust the guy more if you knew that he had some experience with being in the cavern you're in, right? And that goes without saying. And it's like that in life. When someone is teaching you something or uh, explaining how to do something or describing what something is like, we'd have more confidence in what they were saying if they had experience in that thing that they were teaching or describing, right? And that's the case for the next minor prophet that we are going to be looking at together. This prophet probably understands the depth and the impact of his message and its significance more so than any other prophet because he himself went through the same experiences that God was expressing in his messages for this man to deliver. This man understands what God is saying, not just by hearing it from God and not just by speaking it to the people for God, but by actually living it. The prophet's name 
As you can see on the screen behind me is Hosea. And though Hosea was not the first minor prophet chronologically, he was placed in the scripture as the first canonically. That is, the if you look at the 12, he's the first one given there. And I think that's because the theme of Hosea is the grandest theme among all the minor prophets. In fact, its theme is probably the grandest theme in all of scripture. For it focuses our attention on the song that we just sung, the love of God. So please turn to Hosea as we look to him this morning. We're going to look at the first nine verses. And what's unique to Hosea is, again, that his own life is interwoven. It's, it's interconnected. It's intertwined with the message that he had to deliver. And I know the prophetic books, as we've said several times before, they're not primarily about the prophet. In fact, in most of the books, we're given very little information about the man delivering the message. But before we look at God's message through Hosea, I first wanted us this morning to look at Hosea's life because he has much to teach us, not just by what he said, but also by how he lived. So this morning, we're going to look at four things about Hosea. We're going to look at his background, his times, his family, and then his message. Let's first consider his background. Look at Hosea, the first verse of chapter 1. Hosea's introduction reads, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Let's stop there. Here Hosea's prophecy begins like just about every other writing prophet. That statement, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, tells us that he is going to speak for God, that God has given him a message to declare. And Hosea, here is prophecy, it didn't come about by visions like it did in the case of Amos or Zechariah. It, it, it didn't come about through some national event as it did for the prophets Obadiah and Joel. Rather, Hosea's message came through his own experiences. Hosea's name, actually in the Hebrew, is, should be pronounced Hosea. It is the same word, the same root as for Yeshua or Joshua. It means salvation. And though we aren't told explicitly in verse 1 to whom Hosea was sent, we do see in the rest of the book it's made pretty clear. He was sent primarily to prophesy to the ten northern tribes of Israel. We see this in that Israel is, is mentioned over 70 times within the book uh, with titles and terms such as Israel, house of Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, and Jacob. Israel is also addressed directly many times in the book. If you look at Hosea 4.1, it says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. Or in 5.1, Give heed, O house of Israel. Or in Hosea 9.1, Do not rejoice, O Israel. Hosea 11.8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Or in 14.1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. So clearly, Israel is addressing directly, or, or Hosea is directly addressing the ten tribes of Israel. There are a few instances where he does address Judah, just like he did, just like Amos did. Uh, 6.4 is one example where he says, What shall I do with you, O Judah? And Judah is mentioned 14 times in the book. But it is Israel who is the predominant focus of Hosea's messages. And unlike Amos, who he was a prophet to Israel, but he came from Judah, Hosea appears to be from Israel. He seems familiar with the geography and with the history of Israel as we look through the book. He also seems to have a pretty good grasp on what was currently going on in Israel. And also in Hosea 7.5, it says there that the king of Israel is identified as our king. And thus, along with Jonah, 
Hosea then is the only writing prophet that was native to Israel. But we don't know where his hometown is. is. There's a couple of uh, suggestions in Jewish tradition. One is that he came from the eastern side in Gilead. Another says that he came northwest of the Sea of Galilee. But we don't really know for sure. And I wanted to show you... Uh Uh-oh. I lost it. Okay. I wanted to show you our timeline. We've looked at this several times. The area highlighted in yellow represents the time frame when Hosea was, his ministry took place. The, the, you can see there's the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, and those are the ones that are listed there in yellow just to highlight it. And if you look at the kings that are mentioned here in verse 1, it spans a time frame of almost 100 years from King Uzziah all the way to King Hezekiah. And those are kings of Judah. But his ministry probably didn't span that entire time. It just took place during uh, parts of these various reigns of these kings. Uh, His ministry likely started after Amos's ended. You can see here Amos. He was during right around the time of Hosea. Uh, The ministry that Hosea uh, began probably was right around Amos or just after, around 760 B.C. Hosea's ministry probably ended just before the Assyrian exile in 722 B.C. because Hosea mentions that that the judgment was coming, but there's nothing in the book where he describes it actually having taken place. So we're talking about a time frame, a span of about 30 to 40 years of his ministry, much longer than Amos, who was before him. Now, you careful observers, if you're looking at verse 1 and then looking at the chart up here, may have noticed that only one king of Israel is mentioned. Hosea was sent to Israel, but but how come there's only one king, Jeroboam, who's described there in verse 1? All the kings of Judah are listed, but only Jeroboam is listed for Israel. And if you notice here, there are several kings that took place that had reigns after Jeroboam. So why were they left out? We'll, We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Notice, too, from this chart that there were other prophets who were before and during Hosea's ministry. Hosea came about 50 years after Elisha, who prophesied in Israel, and about 20 years after Jonah. He overlaps or maybe comes right after Amos' ministry. And notice, too, in Judah, the prophets Isaiah and Micah overlapped Hosea's ministry as well. And as far as Hosea's vocation, what, you know, what was he doing before God called him into this role? There are several possibilities that scholars have offered. These are only theories, but I think some of them are rather interesting. Some say, well, he was a prophet. He was raised in the school of the prophets, and he was now just carrying out and fulfilling the ministry that was given to him. He does address the prophets in Israel, of Israel several times in chapters 4 and 9. But Hosea 1-2 indicates that Hosea wasn't called to prophesy until he was called to marry. It says there that that the Lord first spoke to him and told him to marry. Others think that Hosea may have been a priest. There's a few places in the book, chapters 4 and 5 in particular, where Hosea expresses uh, keen interest in what the priests were doing and actually directly addresses them in chapter 5, verse 1. But that was the case in several of the prophets. They often addressed the priests, even though they were not a priest. There's no other evidence either that Hosea was such a, had such a vocation. Some have even conjectured Hosea may have been a baker. Uh, if you look to Hosea chapter 7, there's an illustration that Hosea uses regarding baking. He describes the immorality going on in Israel as like an oven being heated up and then describing the a dough being kneaded and, and rising as it's going to be put into the oven. It's an interesting theory, but there's nothing else in the book 
to substantiate this, and many people would have known some of these basic baking principles. I wouldn't be one of them, but there would be those in his day that, that would. You know, I, I think the most plausible theory about what Hosea was doing before the Lord called him was that he was a farmer. As we go through the book of Hosea, we'll see that more than any other occupation, he uses uh, figures of speech and metaphors and illustrations related to agriculture. We can't know his vocation for sure because the book doesn't explicitly tell us, but that was the predominant occupation for many in Israel at the time. And as I said, he references things regarding farming often in his book. And so, like Amos, Hosea was probably a man who grew up on the farm. And while he was farming one day, the Lord called him out of the fields in order to proclaim a message. So that's some of Hosea's background. I want us to talk a little bit about his times. It's important to know what what was the situation during Hosea's ministry? What was going on around him while Hosea was sent to prophesy to the people? Because that's going to help us understand more of what his message was about. And as we consider Hosea's times And what was going on in Israel, I think Charles Dickens, the first line that he gives in his book, A Tale of Two Cities, probably describes it well. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the best of times early in Hosea's ministry. Those were the days of Jeroboam, the same time period in which Amos prophesied. We learned a lot about what was going on in Israel in Amos's day from our study of Amos. We learned that, remember, there was a time of great wealth and prosperity. There were rich harvests that there was a strong military. In fact, this map, if you'll remember, that we looked at last time, the military was so strong that Israel under Jeroboam was able to expand its borders up into Aram, and Judah under, under King Uzziah was able to extend its borders south and to the west. And as a result, they experienced great security from their enemies. So early on in Hosea's ministry, during the days of Jeroboam, these were times of peace and prosperity, Times of blessing that they had not experienced since the days of David and Solomon. But then the best of times became the worst of times. I mentioned earlier in verse 1 that Jeroboam was the only king of Israel mentioned there. That the kings that followed him were not given. And I think that was in part a reflection of how Israel's monarchy fell apart after Jeroboam's reign. In fact, most of Hosea's ministry took place in perilous time. As I mentioned, there are several kings here that are described and given. Well, I want us to go back and see exactly what happened to Israel. Go back to 2 Kings 15. It's important we see the context here, the historical context of what was going on. What happened after Jeroboam's reign? 2 Kings 15. It's a historical narrative. <clears throat> I'm going to keep this slide up because there are going to be several names that we don't often hear. There'll be several places that are mentioned and and years. But I don't want the historical aspect of the text to distract you from seeing what was really going on and what was happening. For it's very important in understanding Hosea's message. We'll be beginning in 2 Kings 15, verse 8. Where it says, In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah... Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now that Jeroboam is not his dad he's talking about. It is the first Jeroboam who became king right after Israel and Judah split. It says that he didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had brought in idol worship into Israel, which he made Israel sin. 
Then, verse 10, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people and killed him and reigned in his place. So Jeroboam's son takes the throne. After six months, he's assassinated publicly by Shalom. Go to verse 13. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him and became king in his place. So here we see the guy who assassinated Zechariah is himself assassinated. He's assassinated by a man named Menahem, a guy who was no saint himself. Look at verse 16. See what he does to those who refuse to acknowledge Menahem as king. Then Menahem struck Tifshah and all who were in it. Now that's a region in Samaria and its borders from Tirzah because they did not open to him. Therefore, he struck it and ripped up all its women who were with child. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, son of God, he became king over Israel and reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. No kidding. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. So here we see. This was a wicked man, but things did not go so well for him either. Look at verse 19. Pol, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver so that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his rule. Then Menahem exacted the money from Israel, even from all the mighty men of wealth, from each man 50 shekels of silver to pay the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria returned and didn't remain there in the land. Well, here we see... Assyria is growing in power, and they had advanced all the way to the borders of Israel, intending to invade Israel. But Menahem pays them off, pays a tribute, so that the king of Assyria relents. Skip to verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, by the way, that's another name for Uzziah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Boy, it's a broken record. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Pekah, son of Remaliah, his officer, conspired against him and struck him in Samaria in the castle of the king's house with Argov and Arya. And with him were 50 men of the Gileadites. And he killed him and became king in his place. So what happens here to Menahem's son? He's on the throne two years and then he's taken out. He's assassinated. Verse 28 says that Pekah was no better. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Verse 29, it says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Abamah-Makah and Janoah and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried them captive to Assyria. And Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him and put him to death, became king in his place. Again, we see the assassinator became the assassinated. And I had us read through this because I wanted you to see the degree to which Israel spiraled into chaos and turmoil and unrest. All of the stuff we read happened within a period of 30 years following Jeroboam's reign. Jeroboam, he he had enjoyed a long reign of himself of 40 years, a time of peace and security and prosperity. And then after him, in just 30 years, there were six kings 
Four of them were assassinated. One of them after just two years, another after six months, another after only a month. What do you think it must have been like living in those days? And all this political turmoil, what else was going on? The power to the east, Assyria was rising and had threatened Israel at one point. And then not long after that, it actually come in and invaded Israel, taking large regions and cities and taking the people into exile. And then less than 10 years later, 2 Kings 17 tells us that the rest of Israel was then completely consumed by the Assyrian war machine. Many taken into exile, just as Amos had predicted. So again, let me ask you, what do you think it would have been like to be in Israel in those days? You know, we passed this year, not long ago, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the last American president, the last one to be assassinated, JFK. And given the impact that that one assassination in our country had, can you imagine how things would be if in the next 20 years, three more had been assassinated? The unrest, the uncertainty, the fear, the mistrust of leadership, the doubts, wondering what was going to happen, and how do you think the economy would be impacted? On top of that, what do you think the people would be feeling and thinking with the threat of the Assyrians and the fact that they had just taken a large chunk of land? In fact, here's a little chart that shows roughly how the tribes of Israel were divided out. I have it here because I want to show you. It says that the Assyrians took this entire region, this entire region, Naphtali, and several cities in the area of Galilee. Wiped out, taken, people taken out into exile. So think about this. What if an enemy nation invaded the United States and took the entire Northeast into captivity and exile. And if they could do that, how much of a threat do you think they'd be to the rest of the country? That's exactly what the people were facing. These exactly were the times in which Hosea prophesied to these very people. You know, you think we just went through an economic downturn. Again, imagine how the political international chaos would have had the effect it would have had on Israel's economy. Flip back to Hosea. It wasn't just the, these circumstances that were a serious condition and situation in Israel. But on top of all that, the nation's morality was only getting worse. Right? What was that refrain that we heard over and over with each king? He did evil in the sight of the Lord, falling after the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. You remember in Amos, right? How did he describe the situation in Israel during the times of Jeroboam? Remember he talked about the injustice, the oppression that was going on, the materialism, the greed, the exploitation. And you know what? Things didn't get any better. In fact, they got worse, which is understandable considering what was going on at the, in the, those times after Jeroboam. Look at four one in Hosea. He says this. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. What there is is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. He's describing his times. And then down in verse 10, Hosea says of chapter 4, They will eat, but will not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of idolatry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing 
from their God. At least in the days of Amos, there was some acknowledgement of Yahweh. There was some aspect of worship of Yahweh in some of the services that they held. At this point in time, in Hosea's ministry, that was completely gone. It was full-on idolatry in every aspect of the word. Drunkenness, immorality, and it says they didn't give heed to the Lord anymore, that they didn't acknowledge Him. They departed from God. Verse 14, it says, They go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes, so the people without understanding are ruined. I won't get into the details of what he's describing here, but let's just say that church services were, were not uh, what you would think. They were very immoral and wicked. That's where th- things had gone in Hosea's day. His, he says in 12.7 that a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. So the oppression and injustice only continued on during Hosea's time. Throughout his book, these are just a sample of the things that Hosea describes. And throughout his book, he describes rampant sin, swearing, lying, murder, violence, robbery, adultery, idolatry, deceit, injustice, immorality, bloodshed, oppression, drunkenness. The list goes on. He summarizes their state in Hosea 8.14 when he says simply this. It's something he repeats a few times in his book. He says, Israel has forgotten his maker. That was the condition in Hosea's day. These were unsettling times, not just politically or economically or militarily, but in the moral decay of Israel itself. And again, I want you to put yourself in that day. What would it like to be live to be living in those times? Not just with the instability and unrest, but with all the wickedness and idolatry and immorality that was going on. There was a passage in Peter that talks about Lot and how his soul was tormented day after day as he was witnessing the lawlessness of the people in Gomorrah. And I think Hosea probably felt the same thing. But what Hosea experienced outside of his home was nothing compared to what he experienced inside. For Hosea, the turmoil wasn't confined to what was going on in the nation alone, but to what was going on in his very own family. We see that in the beginning of verse 2 of chapter 1. Look there with me. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And we have to stop there a second. This has got to be the most peculiar and troubling opening of any prophetic book in the Bible, if not any book in the Bible. I mean, God gives Hosea this sort of a good news, bad news scenario, right? He says, Hosea, the good news is you're getting married. The bad news, she's a prostitute. This is one of those passages that, you know, if you're reading and paying attention, you go, it's the double take. You've got to stop and go back. Did, did I read that right? Did God really tell him to? Yeah, he did. He did. God told him to marry a woman who was steeped in sexual immorality. New American Standard has uh, toned down the translation a little bit with the word harlot. But the word carries the idea of a person who is sexually promiscuous, a fornicator, a tramp. It was most often used to describe a prostitute. The Jerusalem Bible pulled no punches. It translated it bluntly as, go marry a whore. 
Makes you wince a little when you hear that, doesn't it? And I, I say this not to, I'm not trying to sensationalize this or to be offensive in any way at all, but I wanted you to get a feel or that is the impact that it would have on those reading it, and that is the impact it would have on Hosea himself. Are you serious, God? W- what did you say? So a lot of scholars, because of that, they say, well, God would never tell Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. That would have been wrong. Leviticus 21.7 says that a priest is not to marry a harlot. So some conclude that this story about Hosea must be a parable. It's an illustration. It didn't really happen. But the problem is that this story has all the earmarks of a real account. There's nothing in here to indicate that it was a parable. This really happened. There was a real man named Hosea that really went through these experiences that are described here. Other scholars say, well, yeah, the story is true, but God meant here not that she was unfaithful in a sexual sense, but that she was unfaithful in terms of religious practices. She was unfaithful to God. But God didn't use the word for unfaithful. He used the word harlot. Other scholars say, well, this this is a, a true situation that happened, but this statement is being given from the vantage point of one in the future looking back. So the idea is take a wife who we know will become a harlot. Now, this view does have some merit, but that's not what God said here, ultimately. He said, a wife who is a harlot. Yes, Leviticus 21.7 does restrict priests from marrying a harlot, but Hosea was not a priest. And neither was he even a prophet until this point. He wasn't marrying a woman who was described as an adulterer. That's another word. He was marrying a woman who's described as promiscuous, a harlot, and a fornicator. Taking God's command at face value here makes the most sense. Also because of the reason that God told Hosea to marry her. If you look at the end of verse 2, what was that reason that he gave? He says, for the land commits flagrant harlotry against the Lord. He's saying that, Hosea, your marriage is going to be an illustration and a picture of what is happening within my people, Israel, and my relationship to them. And notice, this was Israel's present condition. And so Hosea must marry someone who is presently immoral. Also, Israel herself was not a chaste bride when Yahweh committed himself to her. If we go back all the way to Abraham, do you know what Abraham was doing when God called him and made a covenant with him in Genesis 12? He was worshiping idols in a foreign land. He wasn't following the Lord. And all of a sudden, God said, I'm going to have a special promise to this man. Now, this guy was out worshiping trees and and signposts and the sun and the moon and everything else. Jacob, what kind of guy was he when God called him and committed to him that he would carry out the promises through Abraham and Jacob? He was a conniving deceiver. Ezekiel 20, verse 7 says that the people didn't forsake their idols in in Egypt when they left in in the Exodus, right? You remember what they were doing at the bottom of Mount Sinai when Moses was up on the mountain? So for all these reasons, I think the literal meaning makes the most sense here. And again, as unusual and as harsh and troubling as it sounds, God told Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman, one who may have been a local prostitute. Before going on, I want to pause here a second. There may be some here in this room who have had the kind of past Gomer had. And maybe when you hear these words, promiscuous, 
harlot, tramp, whore, fornicator. There's a tinge of guilt and shame because of your past. But listen, if you have asked Christ to forgive you, if you've truly repented from that sin and turned from it and put your trust in Christ and His death on the cross to forgive you, to set you free, then you are free. Gomer was unrepentant. You're not Gomer. You're not that person anymore. So don't be ashamed. Be rejoicing. Amen? Such were some of you. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6. Notice in verse 2 that God also said, and have children of harlotry. That word have there is added by the translation. Actually, it is literally take children of harlotry. Some think that God is saying here that in addition to the promiscuous woman I'm telling you to marry, she has children who have been born out from her immorality. You need to take them in as well. It's a good possibility. If you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 1, it describes their brothers and sisters, plural, but only one daughter is mentioned in chapter 1. So it's a possibility that there were other children within Hosea's home. But we can't be dogmatic about it because if you look at verse 3, it only says that Hosea took Gomer. It doesn't mention children. And we don't know what Hosea might have been thinking at this point. We aren't told explicitly, but we can probably have a few ideas, couldn't we? And put yourself in that circumstance. Are you serious, Lord? Did I, did I hear you right? Can you please say that again? How could I do such a thing? This, this cannot be what you meant. But we aren't told his thoughts. Only that he obeyed. And he went and married a woman named Gomer. Now can you imagine that wedding ceremony? Does anyone here have a reason why these two should not be married? I could picture Hosea there thinking, please, please. But nobody spoke up. People must have been saying, I wonder, right? Well, this hallmark story gets even better for Hosea. If you look in verses 3 to 9, we now see the heartwarming account of when they were blessed with children. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. So he went, that's Hosea, and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Judah for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruchamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's stop there. Well, three kids come along. Maybe we might be thinking, well, Gomer must have turned, turned her life around, left her old ways. But did she? If you look at verse 3, notice how the text says, she conceived and bore him a son. But compare that to verse 6. It says she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. See anything missing? Look down in verse 8. With the second son, it says she conceived and gave birth to a son. Again, do you see anything missing? 
With Jezreel, the Hebrew literally reads this. She bore for him a son. But for the next two kids, it simply says she conceived and gave birth. I think a strong case could be made here that Jezreel was Hosea's son, but the other two were not. They were the children of harlotry. And when the time came to name them, God tells Hosea, he doesn't say, Hosea, why don't you consult the top ten names list of the people in Israel and pick one from that? No, he gives them these strange names, named after city and, and these strange terms. At least they would be strange to name a child. He was to name his first son after a city, Jezreel. This was the place where the palace of Ahab and Jezebel was located. You remember them, right? President and vice president of the Baal fan club, right? They were the ones that brought Baal worship into Israel. And as a result, God judged them through a man named Jehu. And Jezreel was the place where Jehu wiped out Ahab's entire family in a bloodbath. But Jehu went beyond what God had told him. He killed also the king of Judah and several in his family and was ruthless in how he carried out the judgment. And so God says, because of that, I will judge your line, Jehu. And as a matter of fact, Jeroboam was a descendant of Jehu. And his son, Zechariah, is when the line ended. Jezreel also means to scatter, which God was going to do to Israel in judgment for her rebellion. Then comes a little girl. And what did God say to Hosea to name her? Name her Lo Ruchamah, which means no compassion or not pitied. How's that, ladies? Would you like that for a name? How about as a middle name? Right? But that's what God said to name her. Because it was in to be the signify God's response when judgment would come upon Israel for her treachery against God, that there would be no pity. And I was just thinking about this. Can you imagine, you know, that, uh, when this daughter, when this little girl is born and, and Hosea comes out of the tent and the, you can hear the newborn crying in the background and a friend of his comes up and says, Hey, Hosea, what'd you have? And he tells her, A girl? That a boy, Hosea? What a blessing. Well, what's her name? What? Right? It would be strange to them. But that was the point. It was intended to send a message. But it was his own kids that God had said to name this way. A couple years after Not Pitied was born, Gomer gave birth to another boy. His name was to be Loami, which means not my people. Again, this was a sign of God's judgment that he, because they had rejected the Lord, he too would treat them as if they were not his and again, think about the circumstance here. As Hosea picks up this little boy, this name could not have hit closer to home for him, could it? Because as he looks in the eyes of this little guy, and his name being not my people, Hosea would know, this, this is not my son. Doesn't sound like much of a love story, does it? Think of the pain, the misery, and the heartache that Hosea was going through. But it doesn't end there. That wasn't the end of it. As if it couldn't get any worse, Gomer goes off with yet another man, and this time she stays with him. And what would you do in that circumstance? Well, Hosea let her go. He didn't go after her, but his life with Gomer wasn't over. If you look over at Hosea 3, verse 1, God had more plans. God speaks to Hosea here. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, 
though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be towards you. Now some say that this woman here in chapter 3 isn't Gomer because Gomer's name isn't mentioned here. But notice here that she's described as an adulteress, not as a harlot. That's indicating she's married. And God wouldn't be telling Hosea to go after and get a married woman unless that woman was his own wife, right? And since his marriage parallels God's relationship with Israel, then it has to be the same person that he's going after. That sentence in three one, which says, Love a woman who is loved by her husband, is literally, love a woman who is currently being loved by a companion. Put yourself in Hosea's shoes. Here's his wife who's run off countless times, now is with another guy, one to whom apparently she sold herself into slavery because Hosea had to buy her back. Again, what must Hosea have been thinking? Lord, this, this isn't the family I dreamed about. This, this isn't the life I thought I'd have. A, a wayward wife, some children not my own, a public disgrace, and now I have to go buy her back? Just think of the pain and the anguish, the torment, the shame, the anger, the bitterness, the discouragement. And he lost any passion for her because God tells him in three one, go again and love her. The question at this point, I think, is why? Why did God resign Hosea to this kind of life? Why did he do it? You know, we often say, Lord, if you just tell me what you want to do, just speak it and I'll do it. Because a lot of times we don't know. We don't know the Lord's will. Hosea got that prayer answered. God did speak to him. And he probably wished he didn't know the Lord's will. But God told him and he obeyed. Again, the question is why? Why did God do that? We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But this morning, I wanted to remind us that God often moves deliberately in our lives, moves us into very hard circumstances at times. Can you imagine a more difficult situation than Hosea's? Living in a nation that is falling apart spiritually, economically, morally, militarily. Living in a home that is falling apart, completely dysfunctional. And remember, this wasn't for a month or two or a year or two. You know, we can read these first chapters, three chapters in Hosea pretty quickly. Take just a few minutes of time. And that can sometimes give the impression that this was something that that was a, a short part of Hosea's life. No, this was for most of Hosea's life. Years and years he went through this. The nation falling apart and his family destroyed. Day in and day out. Hosea is dealing with a cheating spouse and raising these children. And all the situations surrounding him regarding his land. Hosea had a hard life. He had a difficult life. And it wasn't because Hosea had sinned greatly and that these were consequences for his sin. It it wasn't that he had made some unwise dating decisions 
He didn't follow the, the dating manuals that are out there. And so this is what happens. That's not why. It wasn't because he was running from God or had displeased God. None of those things are mentioned. It was simply because God gave Hosea this difficult life. That's why he had it. Walking with God doesn't mean things are going to be easy, brothers and sisters. To expect a life of ease because you are God's child is the wrong expectation. Yes, God does bless, and I'm sure there were those happy moments for Hosea. I'm sure of that. But we have to remember something that we live in a fallen world, don't we? We live in a world that is full of suffering and trials and pain and anguish. A world that is full of sin. A world that has Satan and demons running all around looking for ways to torment. Even Jesus. God's perfect and beloved son. He had a difficult life. The most difficult life of any who ever lived. Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He endured trials his entire life. His entire life. Especially at his death. Especially at his death. Yes, his death was horrible physically. He suffered torture and endured physical pain that that most don't endure. But... But, you know, there are many that did suffer physically as much or more than Jesus suffered. But nobody suffered the way he suffered in his heart. Because when he went on the cross, yeah, as painful and, and as brutal as that is, being nailed to a piece of wood, what he endured was far worse than those nails in his flesh. Right? What did he go through on that cross? He went through the equivalent of an eternity in hell said before right hell lasts forever as a payment for sin for any who would not turn to christ in faith but it goes on and on and on it never stops so that for jesus's sacrifice on the cross to be sufficient to satisfy the wrath of god he endured more than an eternity in hell god the son suffered why did he do that did he ever sin was he up there because he deserved it God had a bigger purpose, a glorious purpose. He had a bigger plan in mind. And God may put you through a trial, perhaps a long trial, because he has a bigger plan in mind for your life. And it may not be one that's all that easy to see. I'm sure Hosea had those moments of doubt and discouragement, those times of anger and despair, the questions, the what ifs, the why, Lord, why? This hurts too much. I can't bear this. The desire to escape pain. Again, we aren't told. I'm reading between the lines, but I'll bet there was some relief when Gomer left. And then God said, no, get her back. This man trusted God, though, didn't he? Did you catch any word of protest from Hosea? Any complaint? Notice his response to each instruction. Hosea, marry a promiscuous woman. Next verse says, so he went and took Gomer. Hosea, give your kids these names that will symbolize my judgment upon the people of Israel. Hosea did. Hosea, 
Love your bride again. Go and buy her back. The next verse. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver. This guy walked in faith. He gave up the dreams. He gave up the dreams of a perfect life, of a storybook home, so that he could be used by the Lord for a greater purpose. And as hard as it must have been, this man obeyed without complaint for years. It's a lesson for us in here, isn't there? I like what John Calvin said of Hosea here when he said, When God employs our service for 20 or 30 years, we think it very wearisome, especially when we have to contend with wicked men. And I would add with even difficult trials. We then instantly desire to be set free and wish to become like soldiers who have completed their time. Lord, I've, I've done my tour of duty. I'm ready for a rest now. He goes on, when therefore we see that this prophet persevered for so long a time, let him be to us an example of patience so that we may not despond, though the Lord may not immediately free us from our burden. Calvin says, look to Hosea as an example in those hard days. Beloved, I know some of you are going through very hard trials, some which may be lasting a long time. Our dear sister Estella lost her husband Paul Tomasek. We had a service for him yesterday. He left a wife and two young kids. Dave Austin shared with me today a a man in Columbia, the voice of the martyrs, has talked about a man who was faithfully serving the Lord there, preaching the gospel for a number of years And the guerrillas tolerated that for a time. But recently they invaded his home and they shot his oldest son dead. They turned the gun on his next son and it misfired and so he was able to escape. And they told this man, you preach this gospel anymore, we're going to kill your whole family. You talk about a trial. This guy is committed though, he wants to go back and serve. Brothers and sisters, our trials can seem unbearable at times, but don't give up. Don't give up. Know that there's a God you can run to. A God who Psalm 46 says is our refuge and strength and always present help in time of trouble. And in the Hebrew, that's emphasized always continually available to help in time of trouble. I'm always here. The God of whom David says in Psalm 62, He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. David had a few trials in his life, didn't he? Even in his family. A God who says, Come to me all you who are weary and very heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a promise. Psalm 55, a God who says of him, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. A God who promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You God used Hosea's life to be a beacon for the character of God. And he may give you a trial in order to allow you and use you, give you the opportunity to lift up his son, Jesus Christ, to be an example of a child of God who is trusting in Him 
And don't forget something. When God gives you a trial, no matter how difficult, He will give you the strength to endure it, as painful as it might be. You know, I, I'm sure he didn't leave poor Hosea out to dry. Oh, Hosea, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to just see how you respond. No, he gave him the grace to endure. And he will give you the grace to endure. Trust him. Trust him. And when you do endure that time of testing, you're going to come out on the other side with a greater love for God, a greater understanding of what God has gone through himself a closer relationship to him. That's what happened to Job. And that's what happened to Hosea. You know, Hosea, I think he understood God's love and mercy and compassion probably better than anybody, anybody else living in his day because of what he went through. He said, God, I get it now. I know how you feel. That brings us to our last point this morning, Hosea's message. Briefly. God's message to Israel came not only through Hosea's words, but also through his life. This is a man we need to listen to. This is a man who's gone down into the caverns. He knows of what he speaks. For the the truth that's conveyed here in this book was forged upon the anvil of his own broken heart. And as we go through Hosea together, Hosea has much to teach us about God. His book will deepen our understanding of God's love. Not just as some abstract concept or a frivolous notion. You know, when we hear people say God is love, sometimes that we don't really get what that means. We'll get it more as we look at Hosea. And you'll be astounded. Hosea's words also show us the true evil of sin and its devastating impact, not only on others around us, but also on God himself. This book will challenge our knowledge of what true loyalty to God really is. It will expose the idols in our own lives and their tragic consequences. And it will also give us a greater understanding and appreciation for God's compassion and His mercy. In the end, God uses Hosea to give us a greater appreciation for His gospel. How we are all sinners against a holy and good God And how that sin angers and grieves him. And rightly deserves his judgment of hell. And how God loved us enough to buy us back. When we weren't inherently beautiful or worthy of being redeemed. We were all used up by sin. Jesus says, I I want him in any way. I want her anyway, and I will die to make it happen. We're going to understand that better as we go through this book together. And understand, too, how God so desires to forgive us and grant us eternal life that He would send His Son to make a way for any who would repent and believe in Him, any who would turn to faith in Jesus Christ, He will readily forgive He has made a way to be redeemed. So I'm excited to see what Hosea has to teach us. I'm excited to see what he will show us about God. For the more that we know and understand our great and holy and loving God, the more we will desire to serve him, the more we will be grateful to him, the more we will honor him, the more we will worship him. To him be the glory forever. Amen? Amen.
Well, as we close this morning, I, I wanted to have you, if you would, please close your eyes. And I'm going to read the first half of Psalm 34. I want you to listen prayerfully to it. If you want to open up and look at it, that's fine. After reading it, I'll give you a time to reflect on these words. Reflect on this message from Mosea's life. Talk to the Lord in prayer. And I'd ask, please, just in these next few moments, don't be distracted about what's coming up next in your day, but just focus this time and and listen to this psalm and talk to the Lord. Please bow as I read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Lord, our souls do boast in you, magnify you, the great things you have done, not only in the past, but also in our own lives today. Thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your servant, Hosea, all that he went through and Lord, all of us are really like Gomer. Either literally or in other ways, Lord, we have been unfaithful to you and sinned against you greatly. And yet you made a way to be redeemed. Father, I would ask, please, if there are any here this morning who have not yet committed their life to Christ, confessed their sins to you and sought forgiveness that you would open the eyes of their hearts to see the truth. And Lord, that you would show them your holiness and show them great love. And Lord, for your children, Father, we thank you that you've given us so much. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth. We thank you for this picture, Lord, of just how awful our sin is and how glorious your forgiveness is and your love. Lord, we do want to bless your name, not only this morning as we sit here in these pews, Lord, but throughout the week. May your son be lifted up in our lives. Give us strength, Lord, any here, Father, who are right now in the midst of a great trial. God, encourage and comfort them. Use Hosea's life as an encouragement to them, Father, that they would run to you Take refuge in you. Use us, Lord, in the body. Help us to be sensitive to our brothers and sisters here and any needs that exist that we would be sensitive to seek to meet them and come alongside each other during these trials. We pray for our brother in Colombia who has lost a son and his family is threatened. God, may you strengthen him, encourage he and his wife, and Lord, may you use him in mighty ways to advance your gospel and to lift up your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.